tithing. It's a topic that's caused much confusion amongst Christians all throughout the church age. And while some pastors insist that the born-again believer is still bound by the Old Testament law of the tithe, there are also pastors like myself who insist that our financial gifts and offerings are no longer a requirement under the law. Now, as we consider these two opposing positions that the tithe is either required or it's not required under the law, we have to understand that it's no wonder why so many Christians are confused about this topic of tithing. Because depending on the church you go to, you could hear just a completely different opinion. And what's even worse is that there are many leaders in the church today who take this controversial topic and they use it in order to fleece the sheep. Or in other words, they use this topic in order to gain control of their congregation by convincing them to give more and more money through carnal compulsion. One example of this was seen back in 2015 when the senior pastor of a church in Bainbridge, Georgia, he decided to make an example of a 92-year-old woman who had been in his church for 50 years. She had been attending this church for 50 years. Her name is Josephine King, and she was kicked out of her church, uh, according to the official letter which was sent from the pastor. This letter to Miss King basically removed her from the roster simply because she had shown non-support towards the church in, in, in specific areas which include, and I quote, constant and consistent financial and physical participation. That's right, this pastor decided to kick out a 92-year-old woman because she wasn't giving enough money to his church. This pastor seems to have forgotten about the way in which the first century church took care of their elderly widows. The first century church, they took the offerings and used those offerings in support of those who couldn't go out and make a living for themselves. Clearly, that pastor has failed to really properly understand what the Bible says about gifts and offerings. And if that's not bad enough, well, it was last April when the senior pastor of the Redeemed Christian Church of God, he encouraged a group of pastors. This, this lesson took place at a pastor's conference. And so he presented this message to a group of pastors, pastors and, he, and he wanted those pastors to make sure that they were returning to their uh, respective churches with a warning for their congregants. And, and the warning, according to that pastor, is according to the everlasting dangers, which, according to him, would come upon those those who fail to follow the law of the tithe. According to that pastor, he says, anyone who is not paying his tithe is not going to heaven. Or, or to put it more plainly, here's what he's saying. If you don't give your tithe to this church, you're going to hell. Oh, it pains me to think that all of those pastors left that conference, returned to their churches, and then placed their parishioners back under the law of the tithe by attempting to convince them to believe that their salvation is tied to the law of the tithe. Unbelievable to me. With that, I'd like to go ahead and pass the, the plate and take up an... No, I'm joking. We're not doing that. You know that we don't pass a plate here. You know we don't place a, a, a high pressure on your giving. And, and as we consider the truth about tithing as found in the scriptures, we're going to example uh, the ex, uh, we're going to examine the example of tithing, which is found here in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to begin to see that the believer is no longer bound by the law of the tithe. At the same time, though, we're also going to consider the importance of becoming believers who have the gratitude to give. And as we make our way through the text, which is before us today, we're going to see, first of all, that we gain the gratitude to give, not because of the law of the tithe, but rather because we recognize God's greatness. Secondly, we'll see that we gain the gratitude to give, not from the law of the tithe, but rather because we recognize God's graciousness. Thirdly and finally, we'll see that we gain the gratitude to give, not from the law of the tithe, but rather because we recognize God's gloriousness. 
Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, because here we find Paul. He's describing that day when Abraham met that mysterious man named Melchizedek. And as you make your way to Hebrews 7, I I should continue setting the stage for our study today. I'll, I'll do this by taking some time to put our text back into its context. It'll first help you to remember that Paul began this chapter by reminding his readers about that day when Abraham went off to war in order to rescue his nephew Lot. And and he was battling against a confederacy of kings who had come from the north and the east of Canaan. Then after defeating the armies of those kings, Abraham found himself face to face with a mysterious man who referred to himself as Melchizedek. Now, in an attempt to help his Hebrew audience to understand the spiritual significance of that meeting, Paul reminded the original recipients of the epistle about the details that Moses reveals back in the book of Genesis. And it's there in Genesis where we learn that Melchizedek is actually a title which is translated King of Righteousness. Melchizedek is not his name, but it's his title. He is the king of righteousness. And and we see that Abraham met the king of righteousness who then also introduces himself as the king of Salem. Now, many think that Salem was an ancient city in, in that region which we now refer to as Jerusalem. But Paul seemed to suggest that this was simply another title which is literally translated king of peace. And so Abraham met with the king of righteousness who is also the king of peace. And furthermore, Paul also reminded his readers that Melchizedek was also the priest of the most high God. Now, it was highly unusual for a person to hold both positions of king and priest. And yet Paul goes on to reveal that Melchizedek was a highly unusual individual. He does this by telling us that Melchizedek was actually a carbon copy or a facsimile of our Messiah, Jesus. Now, the Jewish rabbis there in the first century, they typically taught that Melchizedek was actually Noah's son, Shem. And yet Paul helps us to understand that Melchizedek was without human genealogy. And so, according to Paul, there's no way to to determine that Melchizedek was the son of anyone. Paul actually tells us that Melchizedek had neither beginning of days nor end of life. Therefore, he seems to be an infinite individual who remains a priest perpetually for the rest of eternity. In light of those details, it's my strong opinion that Melchizedek was actually what we refer to as a Christophany or a pre-incarnate manifestation of God the Son. And while we spent the bulk of our time last week considering the evidence for why I hold that position, there, there is one piece of proof that Paul presented in our text last week that I purposefully passed over. And the reason why is because I knew that we were going to spend all of our time this week exploring the way that Abraham worshipped God by presenting tithes to Melchizedek. As a matter of fact, it was back in Hebrews 7, verse 2, where we learned that Abraham gave a tenth part of all to the priest of God Most High. And in this way, Abraham was expressing his gratitude after realizing that the Lord was the one who had given him the victory over that confederacy of kings who had come and invaded the land. Now, in order to understand how this offering was actually evidence that Melchizedek was a Christophany. Let's continue to examine the point that Paul goes on to make here in Hebrews chapter 7. If you would, let's pick up our study beginning at verse 4 here. Paul declares, Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, here in these verses we find Paul. He's helping his Hebrew audience to understand the reason for why Abraham decided to give Melchizedek a tithe of the treasure which he had acquired after the slaughter of those kings. Now, for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word tithe, it literally means tenth. As a matter of fact, the Greek word translated tithe there in verses 8 and 9, it's the same exact Greek word that Paul used there in verse 4, which is there translated tenth. 
And so a tithe is one-tenth of something. And, and in, in light of this, Abraham then gives a tenth or a tithe of the spoils to Melchizedek after defeating that confederacy of kings. Now this offering, it's extremely intriguing and for several reasons. The first reason for why this tithe is so noteworthy is due to the fact that the law of the tithe wasn't yet introduced. This tithe is being given to Melchizedek more than 400 years before God gave the law to Moses. Therefore, Abraham wasn't giving this tithe out of compulsion. It wasn't given out of necessity. It wasn't given because he was legally required to give Melchizedek that tithe. No, instead, Abraham gave a tithe, a tenth to Melchizedek because his heart was filled with gratitude. And in order to prove my point, if you would hold your place here in the book of Hebrews, I'd like you to make your way with me to the 14th chapter of Genesis. It's in Genesis 14 where we find Moses' account of this meeting. And as you make your way to Genesis 14, I want to take a moment to remind you that the odds were completely against Abraham. What I mean to say is that Abraham was taking his servants to engage in a battle against the armies of those four kings. And Abraham's army, well, it consisted of 318 trained servants. In other words, they weren't military soldiers. They were servants who he had trained to do some battle. And it's important to remember that the, the Abraham and his 318 trained servants, they were going off to war against a confederacy of four kings. And while we aren't told how large their army was, there should be no doubt that Abraham and his army were entirely outnumbered. And yet Abraham defeated the confederate army of those four kings. And you better believe it wasn't because he was just naturally gifted at war. No. He received supernatural help from on high. Let's consider the, the way that Melchizedek explains it here in Genesis chapter 14. If you would look with me there in the middle of verse 19, here Melchizedek declares, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And how does Abram respond? Well, there in the end of verse 20, he gave him a tithe of all. Melchizedek helps Abraham to understand that his victory over the enemy wasn't because he was some sort of mighty military strategist. It wasn't because he had the, the, the most, you know, mighty men. No, instead it was God most high, El Elyon, who had given him the victory over his enemies. Then after realizing that God was the one who had given him the victory, Abraham's heart was just filled with gratitude. His heart filled up with gratitude, and as a result, he responded in gratitude as he gl gl gladly gave Melchizedek 10% of the treasure which he had acquired from that battle. In contrast to this, we should consider the way that Abraham then goes on to interact with another king, the king of Sodom. If you would look with me there at Genesis 14, we'll pick up at verse 21. Here we learn that the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Now consider the contrast here between the way that Abraham interacted with the king of righteousness and then turned around and interacted with the king of Sodom. Clearly, his interaction was completely different. You see, Abraham received the blessings of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, and then he responded by giving a tithe to the king of peace, who is, who is also the, the priest of the Most High God. And afterwards, he then turns around and rejects the gifts which were being offered by the king of Sodom. He didn't want the, the blessings that were coming from the king of Sodom. And rather than giving that king a tithe, he simply returned the items which had been stolen from Sodom. 
In light of this, we can see that Abraham, he, he was able to recognize the difference between these two kings. He, he sees this king as the one who is representing God and wants all the blessings he can, he can take from that king. And then, and then to the worldly king says, no, I don't want anything to do with you. And I'm certainly not going to let the world think that you made me rich. To further grasp the, the difference in these two kings, let's take a moment to consider the way in which the, the, the king of righteousness and the, and the king of Sodom are completely different. First of all, the king of righteousness, he reminds Abraham that God most high is the one who possesses everything in heaven and on earth. He says that God is the one who possesses everything. So in other words, hey, the God who possesses everything is the one who gave all this treasure to Abraham in the first place. And so the king of righteousness directs Abraham's focus to God. Conversely, the king of Sodom, he's only focused on regaining control over his own kingdom. He says, hey, you give me the people back so that I can have my kingdom and my control, and you can have this wealth right here. I'm giving it to you. Completely different focus. The king of righteousness blessed Abraham in the name of El Elyon and asked for nothing in return. The king of Sodom attempted to bless Abraham in his own name and for his own glory. And he, he did this by acting like he was the one who was going to make Abraham rich by allowing him to keep the spoils of war. And finally, we should notice there in verse 22 where Abraham describes this meeting with Melchizedek in this way. He says, I have raised my hand to the Lord. He says, I can't take your riches or your wealth to the king of Sodom, because he raised his hand to the Lord God most high, El Elyon, the possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, Abraham, he not only gave a tenth of his treasure to the king of righteousness and rejected the riches of the king of Sodom, but then he raises his hand, which is to say that he swore an oath to El Elyon on that day when he received the blessings of Melchizedek, which came in the form of bread and wine, which are the elements of our communion with Christ. Based on this, there should be no doubt in our minds that Abraham fully recognized the difference between the king of righteousness and the king of Sodom. And in this, we see that Abraham recognized the greatness of God in Melchizedek. In order to further explain the point that I'm seeking to make, if you would, let's make our way back to Hebrews chapter 7. I want to draw your attention again to verse 4. Here in Hebrews 7, verse 4, Paul declares, Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Consider how great Melchizedek was. Paul's encouraging his Hebrew audience to contemplate the greatness of of Melchizedek. And according to Paul, Melchizedek was so great that Abraham was moved with gratitude to give him a tenth of the treasure. Melchizedek didn't ask for it. He wasn't legally required to give it. He wasn't obligated to give God a tithe. And yet Abraham gladly gave this tithe because he recognized that God is the one who is the possessor of heaven and earth. And God is the one who had given him the victory over his enemies. And God is the one who had made him rich. Therefore, Abraham expressed his gratitude before the king of righteousness by simply just giving him a tenth of the treasure. It's as if to say, well, God, you gave me 100% of this. It's nothing for me to give you back 10%. We should also notice that Paul was encouraging the Hebrew believers there in the first century to, to consider how great Melchizedek must have been for Abraham to simply worship him in this way. And while it's true that the Christian, listen, the Christian is no longer obligated to give tithes according to the law of Moses. Abraham wasn't obligated and neither we are, are we. And yet here Paul seems to be suggesting that, that those who truly grasp the greatness of God like, like Abraham did, well, then we'll follow in the footsteps of Abraham by becoming those grateful believers who want to worship the king of righteousness even with financial offerings. And much like Abraham, the believer who desires to worship the Lord will honor him with the treasure that he's given to us. In light of this, I would ask, do you recognize the greatness of God this morning? I mean, do you tr truly recognize the greatness of God? Do you really realize that he is the possessor of heaven and earth. 
And, and much like the child that, that you might be raising right now might think that, you know, their room is theirs and, you know, their toys are theirs. And, you know, if they, if they really recognize what's going on there, they'll, they'll realize that all of that is yours, really. <laughs> and yet the silly child begins to think, oh, this is my stuff, my stuff. And it's just like, yeah, dad bought that for you, right? Mom got that for you. And yet, how silly are we to think that, oh, this paycheck, this is mine. I earned this. Really? Pretty sure God is the possessor of heaven and earth. I'm pretty sure he gave you the ability to get a job, you know, the skills to do it. It's all his. He's the one who has provided us with the wealth that we have, regardless of how large that, that pile of money is or how small it is. It's his. And with that being the case, the believer who begins to recognize the greatness of God, I believe that will be moved to gratitude and, and will think like Abraham, hey, what is, it, what, is it, what is it for me to just give a little back to God as, as an act of gratitude and, and as worship? It's nothing. He's the one who gave it in the first place. And listen, we not only give with gratitude when we recognize God's greatness, but I believe that we'll also be moved to give with gratitude when we recognize God's graciousness. And with this is our focus, let's continue to consider what Paul is writing here in Hebrews chapter 7. If you would look with me again, beginning there at verse 5. Here Paul declares, And indeed those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. Now, here in, these, in this verse, we find Paul reminding his readers about the law of the tithe, and it's not like they had forgotten it. They knew all about the law of the tithe. These Hebrew believers had grown up being taught the law of the tithe. And if you're interested to learn more about the law of the tithe, I would just encourage you for homework to go study Deuteronomy 14 and Numbers 18. You'll learn all about the law of the tithe. But for now, I'll just simply sum it up. And, and it is simply put, the children of Israel were required to give a tenth of everything. They, they were required to give it, but let's drill down this, into this a little bit further because they were actually given, uh, required to give three different tithes. They were required to give three different tithes when added all up, roughly amount to 23% of their income. And so if you're going to come here telling me that you're keeping the law of the tithe, then make sure it adds up to 23% because that's the true law of the tithe. There was one annual tithe, which was for the Lord. It was 10% of, of what they had. And then there was another annual tithe, which was given to the priests. And, and then there was a triennial, uh, a triennial annual tithe, easy for me to say, which was, it was set aside every, every three years. And it was for the poor. And when you added all these tithes together, they, they were basically giving 23%. If you'd like to keep the law of the tithe, go for it. But as we recall these required tithes, I want to remind you that Paul, he's probably writing this letter around 62 or 63 AD. And what this means then is that the temple was still standing there in Jerusalem. I'll remind you that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And therefore, at the point in time when this is being written, the, the temple is still open for business. Uh, you know, the Jews were still bringing their offerings and, and they're still bringing their tithes uh, to the Levites. And, and it's important to remember that the original recipients of this epistle, they were Hebrew believers. And as we saw early on, they were Hebrew believers who were beginning to waver in their faith. They were thinking about returning to uh, the, the, the religion of Judaism. And though they had been dispersed, I'm, I'm imagining that they're, st they're starting to think, well, you know, the, the temple's still functioning. They're still giving their all. Maybe we should do the annual, you know, trip back to Jerusalem. You know, I mean, why would God be upset about that, right? Why, God, God wouldn't be upset if we went back and offered, you know, sacrifices again. And, 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 and you know, how, how could God be mad if we took our tithes back uh, to the Levites, you know? They were thinking about returning to the Old Testament religion rather than walking forward in faith. And, and I imagine that they were wrestling with the religious obligations that they had been raised to observe. I mean, think about it. The Hebrew believers there in the first century, they were raised up with all of these religious rituals and traditions, which included this annual journey to Jerusalem where they would present the tithes to the son of Levi uh, according to the law. 
listen, we recognize that we're all creatures of habit and we're easily caught up in all of our traditions. You know, for example, St. Patty's Day. I mean, how many of us are actually Irish here? You know, and, and, and why do we celebrate as a nation St. Patty's Day? No reason at all, except that it's traditional. It's just a tradition that we keep every single year, though chances are most of us don't have Irish heritage. It's just a tradition, and it's hard to let go of. We're creatures of habit, and we're easily caught up in our traditions, and I imagine that the original recipients of this epistle, they were attempting to justify this deep-seated desire to return to the religious rituals of Judaism, and they were probably getting ready to take their tithes back to the temple, and here Paul is saying, hey, you want to know about the tithe? Let's, Let's go beyond the law, and let's look at the first example of this. Paul took the time to put the law of the tithe into a proper perspective, and with this in mind, look with me again, beginning there at verse 5. Because here again, Paul presents this proper perspective by reminding his readers that those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood, those who are part of the Levitical priesthood, they have a commandment that's found in the law of God to receive tithes from the people according to the law that is from their brethren. Or in other words, the rest of the Israelites were supposed to bring these tithes to the sons of Levi, though they were all from the same bloodline of Abraham. But then in verse 6, he says, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, based on this, we can see that the Old Testament law of the tithe was actually a reflection of the tithe that Abraham offered to Melchizedek so many years before. While it's true that the tithe became a legal obligation under the Levitical law, it's also true that the original tithe was nothing more than an act of worship born out of just simple gratitude in the heart of Abraham. And as we take a closer look at this text, we can see that Abraham's heart was filled with the gratitude to give. And the reason why is because he began to realize how gracious God actually is. As a matter of fact, notice with me again there in the middle of verse 6. Here again, Paul tells us that Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. I like the way that the scholars who gave us the New Living Translation rendered this verse. They put it like this. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham, and Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. It brings a little more clarity to this account, and yet it's a little backwards here. Because as we recall Moses' account of this situation, which is found back in Genesis chapter 14, we learn that Melchizedek first blessed Abraham by bringing him bread and wine. Melchizedek then explained that his treasure actually came from God who possesses heaven and earth. Helped him to understand that God had given him the victory over those kings. And then based on all of that, Abraham then expressed his gratitude by presenting him with a tithe of his treasure. So it was was a responsive offering. Abraham understood what God had done. And as he received the bread and the wine, the communion elements of our Christ and Savior, he responds with this offering. I believe that Abraham, as he received the bread and the wine from Melchizedek, realized that God is more gracious than he even imagined. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word grace, in a biblical context, it refers to the unearned and unmerited favor of God. The grace of God is unearned. You can't work for it. It's unmerited. You don't deserve it. It's just simply favor. 
that God gives. And as we consider the way in which Melchizedek blessed the man who had already received the promises of God, I don't think there was any doubt in Abraham's mind that God's grace is more amazing than he initially realized. And in order to prove my point, if you would hold your place here in the book of Hebrews and turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, and as you make your way to the third chapter of Galatians, I want to take a moment to remind you that the Lord had graciously promised to provide Abraham with a promised son who would actually become a blessing to every believer. And I'm certain that at first, Abraham initially thought that this promise was all about his own child. I'm I'm guessing that he's thinking that, oh, okay, this promised child is my child. It's going to come from the womb of Sarah. And yet, I have to to imagine that this whole perspective changed at the very moment when Melchizedek showed up and blessed him with the communion elements of Christ. The reason I say this is because, remember, what, what Paul tells us uh, back in chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 3, is that Melchizedek was a carbon copy, a facsimile, a perfect likeness of the promised seed of Abraham, who is actually Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, uh, consider how Paul addresses this here in Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. Here Paul declares, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, And to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed. And Paul says he's not talking about Isaac here, but Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, Truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now here in these verses, we're reminded of the fact that the promises that God made to Abraham weren't fulfilled in Isaac. No, instead they were actually pointing to the seed, our Savior, Jesus. And while it's true that the Lord was this gracious God who who gave promises to Abraham, I don't think that Abraham fully grasped how amazing the grace of God was until he met Melchizedek, who, according to Paul, is a carbon copy of our Messiah. As I pointed out in our study last week, I believe that Melchizedek was a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate manifestation of God the Son. And as Melchizedek showed up and blessed Abraham with the bread and the wine, I have to imagine that Abraham had this complete aha moment of, oh, wow, this is a picture of the grace that God is going to send through the promised seed. I think that he, he caught a sneak peek at, at coming events and that the, the promises of God wouldn't be f- fulfilled in his son Isaac, but rather in the future through a Savior who revealed himself in Melchizedek. In light of all this, that Abraham then, his heart is filled with gratitude as he grasps the graciousness of God. And as a result, he simply gives 10% of his treasure back to Melchizedek. Now, in order to grasp how this story should affect the born-again believer here in the 21st century church, continue holding your place there in the book of Hebrews. And if you would, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And as you make your way to the ninth chapter of 2 Corinthians, I want to take a moment to remind you that Abraham didn't give a tenth of his treasure to Melchizedek because he was legally required to do so. No, instead he was moved with gratitude as he realized how gracious God is. And in the same way, I believe that those of us who grasp the graciousness of God, I believe that we'll also become those believers who begin to give with gratitude. 
Let's consider how Paul puts it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 8. Here Paul assures his audience that God is able to do what? To make all grace abound toward you that you, some of the times, no, always, having most things, nope, having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work as it is written. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Here in these verses, we find Paul helping the Christians there in Corinth to understand that those who have received the gift of God's grace by faith in the gospel of Christ Jesus, we will also realize that God's grace is so much more wonderful than we could even imagine. You see, he not only provides us with the forgiveness of sins, but right there we learn that he is able by his grace to provide us with all sufficiency in all things that we may have an abundance for every good work. He's able to make all grace abound towards us so that we always have all sufficiency in all things. The graciousness of God will always provide the born-again believer with everything that we need to accomplish every good work that he's calling us to accomplish. And with that being the case, I just want to back up and consider the point that Paul began making. We kind of jumped in two verses late. Look there at 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Because this is how he kind of begins all this. He says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give, not according to the law, but how? As he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. We aren't legally obligated to give anything. We certainly aren't legally obligated to give a tenth of our treasure to God, and yet those who truly grasp the graciousness of God will realize that he is the king of righteousness who has blessed us even beyond the promises that he's made to us. And just like Abraham, if we really get it, well, then the grace of God will fill our hearts with thankful gratitude as we realize that he is able to take the, all the grace that, that he can muster and supply us with everything that we need. And I'm here to tell you, you can't outgive God. I dare you to try. Because he says, here's 100%. And you say, well, here's 10% back. And he says, well, here's 100% then. Well, here's 10% back. Well, well, then here's 100%. Well, here's 50%. Well, here's 100% back. You know, it's like you're never going to be able to outgive God. And so then I ask, do you truly have the gratitude to give? Do you really recognize that God is so gracious that he blesses us beyond the promise of salvation? Do you really believe that he's able to, to, to give you all sufficiency in all things so that you can have, a, have an abundance for every good work? Or, or are you just holding on to your money because you don't believe that God is so gracious that he might give you just a little bit more? He's ready to bless you beyond the promises that he's made. And, and so trust me when I tell you that the graciousness of God is more amazing than you could even uh, imagine right now. And those who grasp the gracious of God, we will have a heart that's filled with so much gratitude that, that, that we just can't help but to give. And so we see then that those who recognize God's greatness will, will have the, the gratitude to give, and those who recognize God's graciousness will have the gratitude to give. And finally, we should consider how the gratitude to give is also seen in the hearts of those who recognize God's gloriousness. And with this as our focus, let's continue making our way through Hebrews chapter 7. If you would, let's turn back to Hebrews 7. I, I want to focus there beginning at verse 7. 
Here Paul goes on to declare, now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul helping his Hebrew audience to understand that the priesthood of Melchizedek is much better than the Levitical priesthood, and in several ways. For example, he helps us to see that the Levitical priests who come from the bloodline of Abraham's great-grandson Levi, uh, they essentially gave their tithes to Melchizedek through their great-grandfather Abraham. This deals with federal headship. Abraham serving as the federal head of his entire lineage, all of his progeny. Abraham represented all of them as he gave tithes to Melchizedek. And so in this sense, the Levites, who received tithes from men, gave tithes to Melchizedek, showing that the Levitical priesthood is not better than the the priesthood of Melchizedek, but rather the other way around. In this way, Abraham proves that the priesthood of of Melchizedek is better or more excellent than the Levitical priesthood. And not only that, but I should also remind you of something that Paul revealed back in verse 3. It's there in verse 3 where Paul tells us that Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy. And just to be clear, he says that he has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God or made a a carbon copy of, of the Son of God. And therefore, tells us that he remains a priest perpetually or continually or, or for all infinity. Now compare that to something that Paul writes here in verse 8 where he reminds his readers that the Levitical priests were mortals. I mean, there's no comparison. You have Melchizedek, who is an infinite priest, and then you have the Levitical priests, who are mortals. And therefore, by the time we get to the end of this chapter, you know, Paul's going to tell us that they're prevented by death from continuing in that position. In other words, uh, this high priest would die and the, and, and the position would be passed on to his son and so on and so forth. But Melchizedek remains a priest continually because he is a Christophany and because Jesus continues to serve as the priest of God most high according to the order of Melchizedek. That being the case, the priesthood of Melchizedek is more excellent. It's better than the Levitical priesthood. And finally, I would draw your attention to the argument that Paul presents there in verse 7 where he declares, now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Now remember, Melchizedek was the one who blessed Abraham. And while there are some Jewish rabbis who would say, oh, no, 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 this is confused. You know, it was Abraham who blessed Melchizedek. Well, no, it wasn't. Not according to Moses. Go back to Genesis 14, tells us very clearly, Melchizedek is the one who blessed Abraham. And since the lesser is blessed by the better, then this shows that Melchizedek is better than Abraham, and not only better than Abraham, but better than all of, all of the Levitical priests who would come from the lineage of Abraham. And for the sake of clarity, as we consider that word better, it'll help you to know that the Greek word might be better rendered superior. Melchizedek has a priesthood that is superior to the priesthood of the Levites. The priesthood of Melchizedek is better than the Aaronic priesthood. It's more excellent in every way. Now, this statement would have been shocking to the mind of the Jew. It would have been shocking to hear that Melchizedek is better and superior to Abraham. And yet, The fact of the matter is that Abraham demonstrated this. Abraham was the father of the nation who had been chosen by God to receive those promises. And while it's true that Abraham held this high position of honor, Melchizedek was the one who blessed Abraham and not the other way around. And not only that, but Abraham showed his submission to the superiority of Melchizedek by presenting the priest of God most high with the tithe of his treasure. So Abraham himself proves that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. And as Abraham grasped the glory of the mysterious man Melchizedek, he was moved to gratitude as he stood in the glorious splendor of Melchizedek's majesty. In similar fashion, I believe that we too are moved 
with gratitude by the glory of God. If we would really take the time to consider the glorious splendor of our Savior, our hearts will be filled with gratitude because as we consider the glory of God and as we consider ourselves in in light of that, who are we? Who are we that God would send his only begotten son to die in our place? In order to further grasp how the glory of God will move us to, to have hearts filled with gratitude, if you would, let's turn to sec, the sec, second chapter of the book of Acts. And you see it's in Acts chapter 2 where we find Luke. He's presenting us with a description of the way in which those first disciples in the primitive church, they were moved with gratitude to give as they spent their time meditating on the glorious majesty of our Messiah. And, and, I, and I think they realized that they were no longer under the Old Testament law of the tithe, And yet they were happy to give what they could for the cause of Christ and because of the glory of God. As a matter of fact, look with me there at Acts chapter 2. We'll begin reading at verse 42. Here Luke tells us that they, speaking of those first century Christians, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They were going to the Bible studies. And in fellowship, they weren't just running right out the door right after the Bible study, but they were actually hanging out with other Christians In the breaking of bread, this is speaking of communion, as well as in prayers. What happened? Fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. They saw the glory of God in the lives of the apostles. And then, verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And what did they do? They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And what happened? The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Here we find the people there in the primitive church. They're moved with gratitude as they experience the glory of God within the Christian community. They're doing Bible studies together. They're fellowshipping together. They're breaking bread together. They're praying together. They're seeing God do incredible things as they set out to to reach the world for, for the name of Jesus Christ. And as they see the glory of God manifesting in the fellowship of the saints, they're moved to give what they could for the cause of Christ. Just to be clear, Luke wasn't telling us that they gave up everything. They, they didn't give up all of their worldly possessions. And the reason why I point this out is because there are spiritual leaders out there who would try to trick you into thinking that, well, you should have nothing, just sell it all, sell your home, sell your car, sell it, and give it to me, you know, and, and I'll manage it all for you. Be careful with those kinds of people. Luke isn't telling us here that they sold everything. They, they didn't just turn into, you know, homeless street dwellers who, you know, didn't have their own camel or something. No, they took what they didn't need and they used it for the cause of Christ. Those with two houses sold one of their houses. Those with, with four cars sold a couple of cars, you know, or camels or whatever you want to say. They took what they didn't need and they used it for the cause of Christ. And as you continue to study through the book of Acts, you'll see that they took the proceeds and gave it to the apostles. They gave it to the leaders of the church. And then the leaders of the church then turned around and and took the consolidated cash and they used it for ministry. We see them feeding the widows and taking care of those who couldn't take care of themselves, feeding the poor. We see them using the money for the cause of Christ. And in this way, we can see how the believers there in the early church, they were moved to gratitude as they saw the glory of God in the way that Christ Jesus was working through the church. In light of their example, I believe that we would all do well to consider their example and then to compare our lives to it. We would do well to ask ourselves, are we doing church in the same way? Are we experiencing the glory of God here within our Christian community? Because if so, I believe that we'll be moved with a gratitude to give, just like Abraham gave when he found himself standing in the glorious presence of God's high priest. 
believe that we would do well to search our own hearts this morning by asking, are we Christians who are grudgingly giving offerings because we feel legally obligated to do so? Because if so, listen, don't give your money. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I am not interested in building this fellowship of faith on grudge money and money that people felt legally obligated to give. I free you from that burden. You are under no obligation to give your money here. And as a pastor of this church, I, I, I totally believe that God is so gracious that he is able to make all sufficiency abound to this fellowship of faith so that we always have everything we need to accomplish everything that he's calling us to do. And so with all certainty, I can just say, you know what? If you're giving money grudgingly here, just stop. It's unnecessary. But rather, God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver who's filled with gratitude recognizing that whatever we have, God gave us. So what is it for us to just give him back a little? Let's give our offerings cheerfully and worshipfully as we commit our cash together to the cause of Christ. And in this way, we can show that we truly believe that he is able to bless us with so much more. But now if this is something that you're struggling with, please trust me when I tell you that I don't want you to feel guilty. I, I don't, I'm not trying to guilt you into giving. I can, I can assure you. We're no longer under the law of the tithe. Christ Jesus is the end of the law to those who believe in him. And while it's true that the Lord has called every Christian to give whatever we purpose in our hearts to give, it's also true that God loves the cheerful giver who is moved with gratitude. And listen, if you're missing this sort of gratitude in your heart, I have to assume that it's because you're focused on all the wrong things. If you find this morning that you're missing that gratitude that causes us to become cheerful givers, then I would encourage you, Spend some more time spiritually meditating on the greatness of God because he is great. Spend more time meditating on the graciousness of God, realizing that he has promised to bless us even beyond his promises. Spend more time meditating on the gloriousness of God by spending time here within your fellowship of faith and seeing how God is still working miracles in the lives of those who trust in him. Spend more time meditating on the God who is the greatest giver of all. Remember, God sent his only begotten son. He gave us his only begotten son so that sinners like us could be saved by faith in the cross of Christ. Meditate on this God. And as you do, you'll find that you, much like Abraham, have a heart that's filled with the gratitude to give. Let's pray.